Hello and welcome to a Big Boss Battle, Big Boss Babble special. This time it's kind of a tabletop feature. It's me and Matt. Hello, uh, Matt here. I'm the tabletop editor for Big Boss Battle and uh, we're here today to talk about Fog of Love by Hush Hush Games. Which is a really, really interesting title because it's, uh, especially for me at least, because a lot of my games are kind of militaristic etc it's 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 the other side isn't it it's making love not making war but it's 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 not because it's also about this kind of uh contestation between two parties against the will of the player but at the same time the will of the player yeah um yeah it's really interesting because there's a lot of different ways you can um you can reach an outcome in fog of love i won't say win or lose necessarily um so the game does have an overall measure of satisfaction that each player's character can achieve and there are certain destinies that you can fulfill and there are scenario um finales that kind of give you a thematic ending to different stories but there's loads of different um connotations there's lots and lots of flavor involved in the ways that the game can finish um and you know there's a traditional scoring mechanism as well just to simply you know, allow one player to declare themselves the winner. But it is, um, yeah, because it's just a one-on-one experience, it's always going to be, um, a, well, it's always going to be competitive, um, but at the same time, there's a lot of cooperative elements running through it. So uh, you can certainly, you know, you it's rare that you will have combinations of cards and characters that allow you to act completely in isolation. And that's actually one of the things that makes it really, really interesting. So it it seems interesting because, as you said, it's it's competitive and it's cooperative at the same time. Uh, it's normally games are kind of one or the other. It's cooperative versus the environment, or it, uh, i.e., the elements put up by the game, or it's directly competitive, like more classic games like kind of Battleship or Risk, or obviously vastly more recent titles. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But like you know, so it just seems odd that this game has i mean i guess the question really is before you get into kind of describing the game if you're against each other and working alongside each other when you win the game on a kind of points basis do you really feel like you've won or are you a little bit like that was a relationship that's kind of gone down the drain there and i feel a little bit guilty actually and wish that we had a we should play again and sort this out well, that, I mean, that can really that can really um, depend on some of those variables I just described. So, I've just finished uh, playing with my actual fiance in real life, and I mean, the, the way that you play Fog of Love, um, you 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 kind of create semi-random um, characters that are that are based on a number of cards. So, each player draws five trait cards. They then select three of those trait cards, and they keep them secret. And they're really um, behaviors, you know, cockiness, uh, shyness, um, attention to detail, assertiveness, you know, things that really define the way that that person behaves. And that's why they're kept secret because they are things that you don't necessarily know about the other person in that relationship. Um, and then you draw three occupation cards each and you select one and your occupation might help to define, um, some of the onboard scoring criteria. So there's a track down the middle of the board that actually demonstrates 
how closely aligned you are to measures like sincerity or um, kind of, I'm trying to think of the other one's name. So gentleness, for example, or sensitivity. Um, and you can be, you can have effectively plus points in any of these traits or negative points in any of those traits. So for example, if you're the opposite of um, gentle, you will generally be more inclined towards, you know, unpleasant or uncaring answers um, with regards to the way you treat your partner. And the trait cards that you have secretly chosen um, at the end of the game, if you can meet certain criteria on those trait cards, uh, for example, if you're very cocky, um, you will always want to be um, insensitive, effectively. You, you, you just aren't going to be a sensitive person. So if you can play in an insensitive way, you will inevitably um, score more points at the end of the game. And that might be directly at odds with whatever it is your partner's trying to do. Interestingly, though, the next part of character creation is um, your partner choosing five cards from a features deck for you, and then um, you choosing three, uh, sorry, them choosing three of them for you, which are the, th the three things that most attracted them to you. Um, so again, you know, they can be physical traits or, um, you know, the way you dress or whatever that, that kind of attracted them to you. So yeah, again, some very, very interesting choices in there, but they can include things like glasses or piercings or dark hair or pleasant smell or whatever. Um, and again, they influence these traits in the middle of the track. So what you can sometimes find is that you get some very early game bonuses towards your traits, or you can find that you get some very early game uh, negatives. And all that's kind of semi-random, but it's created in a really interesting way because you know it's not just dealt from a, a deck of cards and you're stuck with it. It's dealt from a deck of cards and you have some influence over it or your partner has some influence over it. And so you get this immediate um, kind of gentle curve into traditional role-playing. You know, you, this is a role-playing game first and foremost. You, you don't realize it until you're playing it. So it's quite interesting. That's cool. So I, I, I saw that there were kind of six different colored, uh, I guess, trackers in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which are the things that you mentioned that were kind of gentleness or are they? Yeah, I think uh, from memory, there's sincerity, gentleness, um, sensitivity. And then I think it's, um, uh, there's, there's one that I think is discipline, but I call it timekeeping because it's got a little symbol of a watch. <laughs> and then the others are um, kind of your curiosity and your um, your passion for life. I think it's extroversion is what it's called. But again, it's a, you know, it's your, it generally in game, it manifests as your desire to do exciting things. So you can see those markers that are going down on there from the other player. Is that something that happens as the game progresses or is that something that players lead on or is that? Um, a little bit of both, really. So you uh, so you do have the starting markers that come as a result of your occupation and the uh, features that are chosen for you, but they don't really give you any clues because obviously, you know, that's a very... Um, three of them are chosen by the other player for starters and then the one that you might choose i.e. your occupation it doesn't give you enough of a clue to go on so part of the game at a competitive level is trying to understand which of these uh, trackers your partner is trying to align themselves to in order to fulfill their trait and probably score points um, and points by the way in this game are, are called um, satisfaction and really what they are thematically is a measure of your satisfaction with the relationship. So 
you know, they are influenced by your fulfillment of traits, but they're also influenced by each of the scenes that you play as you go through the game and how well aligned you are with your partner. And they're also, um, you get effectively secondary objectives in the form of what the game calls destinies. So, you know, you mentioned earlier um, the competitive versus cooperative angle. Um, let's say you simply have a personality that, that drives you towards selfishness and being domineering. Uh, there is a destiny called dominant, which simply means uh, at the end of the game, if you fulfilled certain criteria, i.e., you're so much happy, you know, you are a certain measure happier than your partner, uh, and you have certain um, kind of personality trait alignments on the board, you have established a dominant position within a relationship, which is your destiny, and that's what you wanted, and therefore you score bonus points. Other destinies are absolutely um, based on being an equal partner. So again, you can have a, a combination of traits that sort of lead you towards having to accept a destiny like um, unconditional love, which is a really good um, opposite to uh, domineering because you can have a dominant partner and, a, and, an, and one who loves unconditionally and, and they can both be happy. <laughs> um, or you can have both as equal partners or you know, kind of madly in love and, and that's fine as well. So there's some really quite clever uh, interplay with you know, with the way those things work. But another part that's interesting about Fog of Love is uh, the game I just played with, you know, with my fiance prior to this uh, podcast, we, we just had two completely incompatible people. Um, I think we we scored in the end, even after final scoring with the fulfillment of traits, um, we scored less than 20 points each, which, uh, you know, to give you some idea of what's normal, uh, in the very first game I played, which did use generally simpler, um, happier scene cards, which are the, the main story mechanic in the game, uh, that was kind of over 70 for both players. So to get kind of, you know, 10 or 15 points only at final scoring is pretty grim. Uh, and actually that's how we felt about the whole relationship. The, the two characters didn't get on. They were badly suited. And yet, you know, the role-playing element, uh, we, we played the scenario, the second scenario that you come across in the game uh, if you play them, you know, in order of easiest to hardest or, or rather least challenging to most. Um, we played the second most challenging and it was called High School Sweethearts. And it really had a feeling that, um, you know, one character had uh, kind of <laughs> always longed to, re to remain part of this uh, partnership, but the other one had gone off done the wrong thing. And as it turned out in our game, they'd got married and had a child and they'd kept that secret. <laughs> and uh, it was it was really just carnage. Um, now that scenario doesn't actually have any destiny cards in it that allow you to break up, um, which is interesting. But nonetheless, you know, those characters were deeply unhappy. And it was an interesting, you know, if somewhat unpleasant, um, you know, way to experience the ending of the game, really. But, you know, again, that doesn't happen often. You don't get games really that, you know, or certainly not board games that can conjure that level of emotional connection. I was going to, I was, I was going to ask, how does this kind of deep end you? Because obviously this is a game very much about players learning the hand that the other person has, but also a game about the other, you know, your hand becoming compatible or you know dominating i suppose the other person's hand figuring out the situations and out outmaneuvering them if you're trying to win or just trying to figure out their hand so that you can cooperatively 
play. Kind of yeah. How does it start, I guess? Yeah, it's... Um, it's The best way to describe it is actually that it, it, it never really does deep-end you. Uh, and that is actually, I think, what makes it um, quite magical. Now, I, I think on the box and in the literature, um, and bear in mind, this product, Fog of Love, is being sold in America exclusively at Walmart, so it is targeting a non- um, hardcore board gaming audience. It's, it's, it's targeting just normal folk. It markets itself as a, the romantic comedy in a board game. Now, I, I think that massively undersells it. I think that, I think that makes you f- think of it being um, light and not at all, uh, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to, you're not going to be able to make a connection with it. I think you definitely can have a laugh. You certainly can have a laugh. You know, I've created some relationships with friends um, that were ridiculous and fantastic and hilarious. But you can also really, um, you can really find yourself walking slowly and with your, you know, with your eyes half closed into some really deep and meaningful conversations in character. That and they're conversations you wouldn't have, you know, under normal circumstances a lot of the time. Uh, you know, th- I mean, the fourth uh, scenario, I'm, I'm going to go light on spoilers, but th- they don't really exist in this game. Um, you just get four sealed packs with different scenarios in. Uh, but in the fourth of them, the most complicated one, which is undoubtedly the hardest to navigate through successfully, um, there are lots and lots of very, very adult themes introduced, um, which are not, they're not sexual, they're not rude. There's, you know, there isn't gratuitous swearing or, or you know, S&M or anything kind of raging like that but it's just kind of this concept of um, you know there's a there's a baby involved and there's kind of the 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 desire to or not to have a family so you you kind of you get this situation where you could have two characters in that scenario that are perfectly compatible and they um, you know they make the same choices and it goes through smoothly which is kind of you know what I guess many many families experience but you can absolutely have the opposite you can have the full Jeremy Kyle nightmare um, scenario and you know that is you don't know you don't know what you're walking into so you know you don't when you deal those cards at the start you don't know what you're going to draw off the deck from a scene perspective you don't know how your character is going to look and you don't know what your opponent is going to look like either so um the romantic comedy element definitely can be partly true but i imagine some people pick up this game start playing it and wonder what the hell's going on whereas uh, i i actually really enjoy that you know that emotive connection because if games whether they're video games or board games don't connect me in some way whether it's you know the horrors of war or you know the emotion of, an, of a relationship here or the escapism of outer space adventure um i tend not to care so fog of love actually um unlike or rather more than most other games i've played this year if not every other game it, it engages me at an emotional level probably more than, as I say, any other game. Not necessarily in the same way as many, many other games. That, you know, there's no war in it. Um, but it, it's it's a bit like when I saw Sephiroth strike down Eris in Final Fantasy VII. I did, you know, didn't see it coming, and it made me instantly sad. I think it's the first time I ever cried at a video game. You know, I haven't cried playing Fog of Love. Um, but I definitely could see how you might, particularly if you happen to just manage to channel a storyline that, that match something that might happen in your own life and that again can happen yeah i mean that's what i was going to say i was going to say because obviously this is dealing with relationships which are undoubtedly one of the most important threads in 
in life, be that friendships or, you know, romantic relationships or emotional relationships, it, it, it sounds like it's quite a, it's quite engaging on, on that level. It must be quite hard to separate yourself from the character unless the character feels like a kind of polar opposite. Did, did you find yourself kind of imagining them as characters that you'd seen in games or TV shows or films? What were your kind of point of reference for these, for these points? Yeah. Um, I think, I think you start again, back to the, everyone starts the game wanting to create a funny character. And, and one of the great pulls about the game is, um, it just, it never demands anything of you. It simply changes the way you play over a course of time. So, you know, you might, you might create a, a ridiculous name, um, and you might have a ridiculous backstory, but as you get dragged through, you know, three chapters and a, and a, and a kind of finale, um, which can be, which can involve going through something like, on average, I'd say uh, twenty scenes, give or take, each of which you kind of play out and make choices around with your partner. Um, you, you just role play more and more and more. I mean, in the last game I played, um, the one I, I spoke about uh, with my fiance, you know, I was, uh, it was the high school sweetheart scenario. As I said, my character was wheelchair bound. Um, he was a. Um, I think it was a marketing executive or something like that, or an advertising executive. And he was, he was quite bitter and twisted. And that's just the way that the traits, um, you know, and the other, other features were dealt out and the way it made me play because I'm incentivized to do so in order to win. Uh, it made me play the character. You know, I, I felt aggrieved. I felt sad. I felt unhappy in the relationship because my partner was very extroverted you know, she she had been previously married, and I didn't know about it. Uh, she had another child that I didn't know about either. Um, you know, and I felt like my character had been, you know, in a terrible accident. Um, you know, which I created that as a a, a high school football accident. Um, and it was kind of like, you know, this guy's been, you know, God knows what's happened to him. She's gone off with someone else. You know, she spent four or five years on her own doing her own thing. They've come back together at a reunion for whatever reason. They've got back together. And he's just found out all this stuff um, about her that, you know, she's not actually kept it a secret from him. She just didn't tell him. And so I felt that, yeah, I felt that, that grievous harm that he would have felt, even though that wasn't necessarily the correct and appropriate reaction, you know, in, in a balanced situation. So it is, as I say, really um, very, very good at, uh, it's very good at digging deep into the human psyche. And making you behave in the, you know, or, or encouraging you to behave in the way that your character should, which is brilliant. I just think it's fantastic. Gotcha. Yeah, that sounds extremely engaging. So, like you, you mentioned all of the different scenarios. Do they stack? Could you carry one group of characters throughout, or are they completely different starting points for the relationship, and then yada yada? Yeah, they're totally yeah. they're brand new. So every every game is a stop you from remembering your favorite combination uh, of cards and occupations and so on and you know and resetting it um but i think that would probably take away you know the that steady ramp that i was just describing that probably takes away that you know that initial gentle role playing that makes you um kind of unwittingly invest yourself in the character um and there's no there isn't a sort of um you know, campaign, uh, there's no campaign feature. There's nothing to carry forward. So it's almost like just a series of isolated and yet very compelling individual stories, really. 
and that makes it replayable. I mean, you mentioned that everything was kind of foil sealed and stuff, but presumably that can be just loaded back away and then you can go, right, we're going to try new characters. It's scenario two. You know, it, yeah. in an yeah. age of uh, pandemic legacy and stuff like that, board games are starting to get to a point where you kind of like discard this and throw this away and cross out this rule from the books. There's nothing like that. It is it is kind of like pick up and play. We'll go scenario free today. Yes, uh, exactly, and and that's um, I think there's a couple of reasons for this for the foil packaging. Um, one is you know very briefly to touch on the general production of the game is that um, without using the word overproduced because overproduced generally hints at a, a game that's more expensive than it should be just because it's got fancier components. Uh, this is a fifty dollar game. Uh, in in America, so in the UK, it's probably going to come in at forty quid. Um, it's probably the best value of any game at that price point that I've ever seen in terms of its build quality. Everything from the box to the board uh, and all of the components are next to perfect, with the occasional allowance for some uh, localization of language. Bearing in mind that this is made by, uh, I think the I think the team at Hush Hush are largely Danish. So there's a little bit of complexity in the language which doesn't come across, but everything else is absolutely perfect. Um, and I think that, to, to cut a long story short, the foil packaging of the scenarios is, is just overproduction. Um, it's just a real nicety to have. But what it also does, um, it ties into two other quite good, or rather one really good feature and one um, consequential feature that I really like about Fog of Love, which is the first time you open this game and you go to the first scenario, which is uh, Sunday morning date, um, every single deck of cards of which there's about seven or eight from memory, so yeah, about seven or eight, um, has a tutorial card on it or in it, or sometimes more than one or you know, quite a few. I think there's about 10 in one of the decks, for example. And the game actually intends for you to not read the manual. It says, don't read the manual, turn to the back page. It gives you about four or five bulleted um, paragraphs of information, and you just draw the tutorial card and do what it says. And it, that tutorial is absolutely perfectly made. And let's say, for example, you've been playing and you've played one chapter that has six uh, scenes in it. Um, what that means is you will play the six scenes and then you'll turn over the next chapter card. In the tutorial, because it knows which deck, because it's instructed you which decks to draw from, et cetera, et cetera, it knows exactly when you're going to reach that sixth card. So when you go to reach for the seventh, uh, you get a tutorial card instead, <laughs> and you get told what to do. And it is the best implementation of a tutorial I've ever seen in a board game. It got my uh, my partner up to speed um, in less than 20 minutes, uh, which is unheard of. You know, She generally finds my explanations of board games appalling because uh, she doesn't want to listen. You know, we have a we have a terrible um, fog of love ranking with each other when it comes to playing board games because she doesn't want to listen unless it's a simple game, and she doesn't want to listen because. I tried to instruct her and she doesn't want to hear instructions from me. So, you know, that this game completely solved that. It completely solved it with the pals I've played with as well. Um, so, you know, it, it's quite difficult to reset the tutorial, but actually once you've learned the game, it really is a walk in the park. And the consequential feature that leads into is that as each of these new packs of sealed cards comes out, you actually change all of the scenarios in the game. So, for example, in the second or third or fourth pack, uh, you'll get new destinies and new scenes that then become usable in all of the previous um, stories as well. 
So not all of them will become usable. And there are some special event cards like the baby um, or, you know, the wedding that you put into a separate deck and you kind of only use them in certain scenarios. But broadly speaking, each new deck of cards will introduce, you know, four or five cards that can just go into the base deck and they will then change the way the other stories play out as well. Um, and there's a, it looks like there's three expansions coming as a minimum because the game even uh, includes dividers um, or organizers, if you will, to put those new cards in as well. So I think the plan, you know, if the plan is to release these kind of recharge packs with new stories, if each of them comes in a little foiled pack, I can't imagine them costing more than, you know, five, six, maybe 10 pounds. And again, for the amount of replayability you'll get out of them, even for the amount of joy you'll get out of just one game, you know, would you spend 10 quid or, or less to sit across from a friend and have a really good experience over the course of two hours? Of course you would. Um, and the fact that if you can do that two or three times, I mean, that's just, a, for me, a really cost-effective way of uh, adding probably unlimited replayability to a game like this. So I'm quite excited for those expansions, which is not something I would usually say. But it's all, it all spawns from the way the game is put together, which, again, is absolutely brilliant. That sounds like a really good modular assembly. I'm surprised to hear that it's structured like that within the one box. Uh, games don't do that often, but it's, I suppose, part of that clever tutorial and the, I guess, increasing emotional difficulty of the game as it expands, as you play more more and more of the little stories that are kind of prefabricated, mm. uh, prefabricated within it. Uh, is it easy, I know this is a silly question, but is it easy to reconstruct that tutorial deck? You said it was a bit tough. Is, are there kind of instructions it, for getting that back it, up and going is, again? Yeah, it is difficult. Um, so the best way to reconstruct it is, it, you know, every every single card, of, I think 28 or maybe 30, something in that sort of area, um, they are all numbered. Um, but what But what you can never really figure out again is where they live. Um, so you can't, you know, unless you, you know, either you took notes or you have a really good memory, you, you won't remember that, you know, card number seven has to go seven cards deep in the sweet deck or, you know, the next card has to go 10 cards deep into the serious deck or whatever. But you can, uh, you can just pile them up one to 28 and then you can kind of um, follow them through in a, in a logical flow. Um, so at that point, you just have a slightly more interactive manual. Um, so it's, you know, it's at that point not wasted but it is certainly uh much less valuable than it was the first time you used it got you which might make it awkward to uh introduce new friends to it but i suppose once you've got the gist of it then it's easy enough to yeah it is up. it is i mean i've just um you know i've just i mean i think i've played the game one two uh five times and then the sixth time today um, so I've played all of the scenarios once, I've played the first scenario twice, and now I've just played the second scenario for the second time. Um, and I I think basically from the uh, second game, I was just setting up 95% from memory. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think I've just, I've explained most of it at the start of this podcast, and, and certainly in the written review, um, where I try not to actually read, or I try not to rewrite the manual. Uh, but I try to give players an, an understanding of, you know, kind of how the game instruction comes together. Really, you just kind of, um, you know, you've got you've got all these things that we've talked about laid out on the board in front of you. So, for example, 
Um, you can see where your features are supposed to live. You can see where your occupation lives. You can see where your character card lives. Um, if you if you are missing any of those things, then you will instinctively just know you haven't set up correctly. Um, and if you pick up the um, the player guide or the manual or even the um, the various chapter cards that live in the stories, they, they've got lots and lots of prompts on. Um, so I don't I don't think anyone, as long as you played it once, even if you didn't play it again for quite a long time, maybe a year. Um, I don't think you'd have any real trouble setting up. You might just forget things like, well, how many feature cards do we draw from? Oh, I forgot that actually you draw my feature cards. You know, it'd be that level of stuff. It'd be very, um, very, very basic, and you would very quickly get over it, I suspect. And you can muddle through a lot of it anyway because it's a two-player game. It is, I don't want to say it's not massively competitive, but it's, uh, you know, it's a, it is a structured role-playing game. So, don't you know, the key thing is don't lose the... Um, don't lose the role-playing aspect, I think, even if that means that you cock up a few rules early on. Uh, yeah, but I'm kind of I'm kind of probably making it sound harder than it actually is. It's, it's really a very simple game. Um, it's heavy. It's heavy to play. It takes probably about an hour um, once you've got two players who know what they're doing. can be longer in the later, more complicated scenarios, but in general, you're looking at an hour to 90 minutes once you know what you're doing. Uh, and almost all of that is going to be just playtime. You won't really be referring to rules. There are relatively few special cards. So there's a few like secrets, for example, which you took under your side of the board. Uh, reaction cards, which work a bit like, for example, instants do in uh, Magic the Gathering. So you can, uh, you know, your player, your your partner makes a choice, and you can instantly. Actually, I quite like this card, although I don't like what it does. Uh, your partner might make a choice that causes you a problem. You can instantly play um, a reaction card if you have one in your hand that forces them to change their choice. And if you do so, you also have to take out, uh, you have to um, search your discard pile for the um, dominant destiny. <laughs> because obviously you've shown a, a piece of dominant behavior there by forcing your partner to uh, change their mind. So, you know, again, that's the level of thinking that happens in the game. And, and that's the complexity of the interactions, really. They're, they're all fairly well laid out. You know, nothing is massively onerous. I found a couple of times... Um, secrets for example they don't count towards playing a scene so scenes go back and forth you play one i play one if i choose to play a, uh, a secret that doesn't count as playing a scene so i would play the secret and then i'd play a scene and there's a couple of other cards like that and they're not always overtly explained um you know and they only really start to appear further and further into the stories into the more complicated decks uh, and it is occasionally the special cards that will um will throw up an issue but actually, uh, as I said earlier, you know, you, if you keep in, in, if you keep playing in the spirit of the role playing that the game's trying to um, keep you aligned to, you will just find the right answer. You know, if it if it looks a bit weird, just follow the common sense answer. It's it's that kind of game, really. Cool. So uh, you've mentioned the secrets a couple of times. I know you're trying to avoid spoilers, but I've seen <laughs> a kind of draft of the uh, of the review in progress. And you mention secrets and you tuck them away and then they might activate later. But can you give us a bit more of a background on the secrets? Yeah, I mean, so, so secrets are great. Um, for players, I found they don't feel like they matter much uh, when you're just starting out. So you first discover them, I think, about halfway through the first story. They The, the tutorial kind of forces them out. Um, and... What's kind of really interesting about them is that 
if I was writing them, I think they would probably all be very sordid, or the, the vast majority of them would be quite sordid. In Fog of Love, you've got just as much chance of it being a surprise party as you have it being, you know, an actual affair, for example. And it, it, the idea with secrets is if you manage to keep them secret to the end of the game, um, they will effectively resolve. Um, and usually what that means is, you know, if you, let's say it was the surprise party one, um, if you manage to get that to the end of the game without revealing it, then usually it will make both players happier because you manage to execute your plan to, to throw a surprise party for your partner and they receive the surprise party, so they're really happy. Um, if that is revealed early because the other player forces it to be revealed early as the result of a card they've got, usually it will spoil the surprise party, or it does, it does spoil the surprise party, and it will, it will spoil a number of other positive surprises, and it'll make both, both players feel bad. Similarly, or rather conversely, uh, if it is actually a more uh, negative secret, which you know plenty of them are, um, it can often benefit the player who's holding it if they get it to the end without it being revealed, but it will usually benefit the one who reveals it if it's revealed earlier. So, you know, it is a, it's a metagame decision that usually only a, uh, a more experienced player will make consciously. So, you know, you, you might just play a card that says, show me your secret because it's fun and you want to know what it is. And you might do that without any real care for whether it affects your score or the players. But actually, I think as, as all players, any player who plays this often is, gets more experienced, they'll be balancing and trying to weigh up whether it's better for them to reveal it or leave it. So, very interesting, uh, you know, meta gameplay. I would say in the secrets. And you mentioned uh, players who play it often. Uh, I've got I've got two questions here, uh, <laughs> but but one of them is kind of I've written down here in my notes. Learning the cards, like as you play it more, as you've got further and as you've played more and more instances of it, do you feel like you've anticipated? things that might be happening do you feel like you've got smart to the game which sometimes happens in board games and you almost need to take kind of time off because you're very aware of what events might show up and what things might ruin things um yes so the i mean the the, the shortest answer to that is yes you can learn um any number slash all of the cards in each of the decks however um again another thing about Fog of Love that is good from a gameplay mechanic perspective is uh, it's almost completely random without ever actually feeling at all random because you've got the, the random selectiveness of the initial character build, which obviously is different every time and will incentivize people differently every time. And then you've got the fact that you've got uh, three decks plus potentially a special deck, which may or may not have any cards in it, depending on the scenario you're playing. Uh, and each of those decks has kind of got, I think it's about 30 or 40 cards in it. Um, and you will definitely see those again and again and again. No doubt about it. You know, I've seen probably all of those cards now um, and almost all of them probably more than twice. Uh, and that's fine because each of them comes with somewhere between two and five choices on it. And whether you would choose a bit, uh, sorry, not two and five, it's two and four choices. Uh, and whether you would choose you know, A versus D versus C versus B on any given occasion would be entirely driven by your character's particular motivations 
and exactly when that card is drawn. So because each deck's random, you know, you might have seen a card on the first flip in the previous game, but in this game it might come, you know, 15th, and who knows where you are at that point in the game and whether or not that card's relevant to you and whether the choices are relevant to that character versus the character previously. So there's no, there's never any real, or certainly not that I can think of, there's never any um, advantage to knowing the cards. It simply changes the way the story plays. And the other side of it is, um, although the cards are flipped off the top of a random deck, each car- each player holds five of them and chooses when to play them. So, as I say, there is the there is the randomness of all these things happening, but at every, every point, every decision is made by people. There's no there's no roll of the dice in this whatsoever. You never there isn't a dice in the box, and there isn't a flipping the coin mechanic or anything else like that. So you you're absolutely the master of your own destiny, um, and it really isn't. It, I don't think influenced by whether you know the cards or not. You you can know the stories, um, but all that really tells you is you know for example, I know that. The second story requires um, the first chapter. You will only draw cards from the sweet deck when you replenish your hand, and that's gonna. There's gonna be six cards played, and in the second chapter, you can you can draw them from any deck, and there's twelve cards played. And in the third chapter, you can only draw them from the drama deck, and I think it's six or eight that are played. That's information I'm privy to that other players wouldn't be, but it doesn't really matter because that's just the length of the game. The the cards we actually draw are sort of different every time or in a random order or different levels of relevance to different people. So so you draw them before you deal them. You draw up into your hand and then you choose which one. You go, right, we're going to Ikea now. Exactly, yeah. So um, every scenario or every story, it tells you which cards to draw at the game. So it might say draw from the serious deck, one from the drama deck and three from the sweet deck, for example. Or, you know, if it's a harder going story, uh, or in fact, if it's one of the expansion stories, which we haven't seen yet, but one of them's called Paranormal Romance, um, it, it might tell you to draw five from the special deck. Uh, you know, I don't know what that's going to tell us um, until we get it. <laughs> but the point is, the you, you kind of have a bit of uh, an insight into what you're going to have in your hand in the instance, but, you know, really, um, you've got no idea what your partner might play. You know, they might play their serious card right at the start, and usually serious cards um, have more variable outcomes, but the most variable outcomes are probably the drama ones, and they almost always have a negative impact on satisfaction unless you happen to match your partner. So, you know, sweet cards are the ones to play at the start of the game usually because they um, they allow you to build up a level of with each other before you start absolutely kicking the crap out of each other as the game goes on. Cool. Uh, uh, the last question, which isn't particularly a good question for ending on, but we'll go for it. But you said you'd replayed a couple of the campaigns. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just wondering how kind of vastly different, as it were, or how different you found the campaigns on playing them based on those characters that you started with and obviously the endings that you got. I, I kind of want to know the extremes of this, as it were. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was... Um... So I, I think the more you play, the more you play each of the stories, uh, the less the actual, you know, the story text um, is relevant, really, because um, the Sunday morning date, for example, is very short. And I found, um, you know, this is a tutorial campaign, and I've found each time I've played it that it, it it's kind of, too, it's just about too short to 
really fulfill the destinies um, that are available to you at the time. I mean, you, you can do it. Yes, you can do it because some of them only require kind of 30 love uh, or 30 satisfaction. And as I said earlier, um, the first time I played that scenario, uh, both players were over 60 um, satisfaction. So we could have fulfilled it had we managed to meet some of the other criteria those destinies had. Um, but actually, you know, it's a short campaign. It's generally um, easy to play. It doesn't ask much in terms of the way that the cards are dealt. Um, and it also doesn't feature a great deal of complicated endings. So you, you, you don't have an option um, or a destiny that allows you to break up, for example, which means that all of the destinies you'll target in order to win are kind of middle of the road. They're quite well aligned. You know, they're usually um, fairly loving towards the other partner. The, 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 you know, the, the other end of the spectrum is dominant is in there. Um, and you can certainly, as I said earlier, you can shuffle in the destinies that appear later as well. And that, that will change the structure. And if you start doing that, really all you're using the story for is to dictate the number of turns that you're going to play. Um, so the story is really what happens between the two players, how involved you get in the acting, how your actual relationship goes. Um, and that really is, you know, that's why I absolutely, I really, really, really absolutely love, uh, love, love. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, you asked what the kind of possible outcomes can be and how they can, how they can vary. Um, I mean, as I've already described the, the game we played tonight, you know, that was uh, basically a sad ending. And yet, you know, what was interesting is both characters, you, you know, you had a brash, outgoing, you know, I pictured kind of, you know, attractive um, female character, very strong, very confident, and a kind of, um, you know, introverted, um, narrow-minded, actually was one of the traits, um, you know, and quite sad, um, emotionally individual on, on the male side and yet both of them ended up very nearly completing um the dest or rather not very nearly completing because we didn't have anywhere near of satisfaction both characters were most well aligned and probably targeting the self-realization destiny which kind of says you can stay in the relationship but actually you both need to um not not quite do your own thing, but you know the, the, this this bloke in this relationship needed to come to terms with what had happened to him, and he needed to come to terms with the fact that you know this woman that was in his life was there for him, and that her past was irrelevant, and that's truly how I felt about it. And you know Jenny across the table from me, um, she felt exactly the same. She felt like her character was um, in the relationship out of genuine love. But at the same time, she had to face and not at all shy away from her past life. And it was, it was, you know, that is what Fog of Love is about. It's kind of, it's kind of about that story. You know, the fact I'm even talking now about a story between two fictional characters that happened in, in the minds of two people, um, you know, that's really uncommon. And the, and the game I described in the review, um, you know, that was two male characters. Uh, I played that with a, a friend of mine who's also male. You know, both of us are heterosexual in real life, and yet we played the characters um, as straight gay men, if you will. I.e., we we played them as gay as we felt that they were in the in the um, in the scenario that we played, and it was just kind of like total escapism. Um, and they had, you know, really interesting characters. One was a domineering uh, criminal with low sincerity, and the other one was an in innocent uh, TV star with a really um, ebullient personality. And, and they were surprisingly well aligned, except for the fact that um, 
the TV star that I played as had a very innocent personality and the criminal that my friend played as, um, you know, he was very insincere and very likely to take advantage of the other's innocence. And, and, and that, that's a perfect, if you think about it, it's a perfect just juxtaposition of characters that for creating an interesting story. And that's exactly what it did. Um, you know, and I, I've had another game or, you know, like I said, I've had another game or two, which were probably, you know, less, less, um, kind of less interesting in terms of getting to the other ends of the spectrum. I mean, for example, the game I played where, uh, again, avoiding spoilers, but conscious have already said it, uh, where there's a baby involved. Um, I think we had less character development in that one because we had more to concentrate on in the game. Um, so it was, it was harder to, you know, they, they weren't, it's not a light subject and you kind of, you get some cars like casual sex or drunken sex. And, you know, the scenario is all about kind of what these two characters do. Um, and again, it, that was, that actually was probably more about where the story was interesting, um, in, in isolation from the characters. And yet the characters were also interesting as well. I can't actually remember the names of the characters we played in that one. Um, but it, it's another one. I think I'd be interested to play that one again and see if, um, you know, see if the way we play it is differently. I'll, I'll probably try and play it with someone different. So far, every game I've played um, where I've repeated the first two scenarios, I've played it with different people because I don't think, or rather I think I'll get more from playing the same scenarios with different people to see how they react differently to the different settings. It would be interesting further down the line to see how two, the two same players play the same scenario. Um, but I just haven't had time to do that yet, unfortunately. So it sounds like at worst, Fog of Love is like real life. And at best, Fog of Love is like some crazy TV soap. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it can definitely get into um, into soap territory. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I, and I and I hope that the other maker Jacob Jaskov has been tweeting to ask people to uh, help him design the next scenarios. You know, the the potential is limitless. I guess really. Yeah. Maybe there'll be a kind of like random murder, and everyone's got to cover it up for a couple of cards, or you know, some, something <laughs> like be, that. Yeah. Hide the body. You yeah. know. Yeah. Well, there's um I mean obviously, you know, one of the characters can be a criminal and uh there is a there are, you know, traits that support that and there are, you know, you you could have a criminal sat opposite a, a police officer, for example. So, you know, it'd be interesting to there could be some very situational cards. Um and there are some situational cards. There are some cards that are only brought into play as a result of others. So, you know, the idea of a wedding, for example, can only be brought into the deck um, if someone has proposed to the other one, which only happens on certain cards, for example. But you, I think what the designer has done quite well is those cards are, I wouldn't say at a minimum, uh, but they're very, very infrequent because they would just add more and more complexity. You know, take, make sure you take this card out and put that one in and all the rest of it. That is minimal here, and where it does exist, it is relatively simple to deal with. Um, you could have, you know, a properly advanced setup um, or system that allowed players who were very, very experienced to really, really, really get involved in some complicated stuff. Um, but we're not there yet. Cool. Well, you say that, but I quite like the fact that it sounds so uh, 
grounded, I guess. Uh, yeah, where it's super, super simple. Yeah, yes. where it could have been, it could have been, you know, crazier. And that said, I'm interested in hearing how this supernatural pack and and more. <laughs> Me and too. More I'm uh, I'm hoping to. Uh, I'll certainly be buying. Be able to uh, get some reviews of those as well when they come around, um, because I am just desperate to play more of this game. To be honest. Cool. And I think on that point, we should probably wrap up about Fog of Love. Um, yeah, thank you very much for uh, for listening. Um, I think it's fair to say, Dan, unless you disagree, uh, I think Big Boss Battle heartily recommends Fog of Love. Uh, we don't have a UK stockist for it yet, um, but as soon as we do, I will update the written review to reflect where you can pick it up. Um, I understand it's due in the next couple of weeks in the UK, so I think that probably means they're aiming for a pre-Christmas release. Uh, but again, as I say, I will update the written review to make sure that you guys know where you can pick it up from. Cool. A pleasure as always. Thank you from me, and thank you from Matt. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye-bye.